Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. The Kingdom Ethics podcast is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life. We are thrilled that you've chosen to tune in this week as we continue in Season 1 with our exploration of great moral leaders from David and Colin's new book, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. We are closing in on the halfway mark for our list of moral leaders. This week, we'll be talking from Atlanta about one of Atlanta's great civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend, the Doctor. Martin Luther King Jr. was born January 15, 1929, and was assassinated on April 4, 1968. He was a Baptist pastor and is known most for his activity during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. His work has inspired and spurred others to great heights. He's a champion in the world of nonviolent resistance and truly one of the great orators of modernity. Loved, hated, inspired against, feared by governments and systems of order. I don't think we can overstate the impact this man has had on our country and our history. This is Kingdom Ethics. We're glad you're here. Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall. And I'm David Gush. And today, uh, as we record, and this one will come out pretty soon, so it won't be too far. Today is February 1. And I'm st- Did you make a resolution? I did. Are you still on it? Yes. Okay, most people don't make it past... Uh, the actual number is January 28th for the most relapses. <laughs> and uh, I'm still... My resolution was to microjournal. So I'm taking up a practice of microjournaling. I don't even know what that is. Most people don't. I recently tried to put together a thing to teach people how to do it, and everyone's like, I don't care about you or what you think. (laughs) Um, So that was a good, humbling experience. But microjournaling, I got from... There's some dude who's like the greatest storyteller ever. Are you familiar with The Moth? No. I think it's an NPR project, but it's like a storyteller poetry, rap battle sort of thing where people tell stories competitively. No. And there's one person who won so many times that they like put him in charge. Like, it's, you can't play anymore. It's not fair. <laughs> so he's got this thing um, where he micro journals. He t- does his journaling in a spreadsheet. He uses Excel. It's not romantic at all. No one has ever... Someone's probably thought Excel was sexy, but... No, no, nobody has. There are hospitals for people like that. <laughs> um, but you put the date in a column, your location in a column, a theme in a column, and then you take the moment from your day that could make the best story and write it as briefly as you can. Oh. And so you can go back and find it cataloged. And I'm I'm hoping, because this has actually really quickly uh, been a good thing for me as a preacher. Um, I have all of these stories cataloged. And I think I could market that to preachers. But the really interesting thing that's happened to me uh, as a person and in my pastoral role is I'm taking more agency in normal moments. Um, Throughout the day, the question's kind of running in my head, how is this going to be a good story? And I I take greater agency. I choose more frequently how I would like to act rather than react. That's interesting. Yep. So today, uh, being February 1, we are stepping into uh, the month set aside as Black History Month. If you haven't uh, seen the, there's these really cool 
things trending on Facebook and Instagram of people decorating their high school and elementary school teachers doing their doors up as great African-American leaders. It's really cool. That's trend. cool. I had not seen that. You should Google it. Um, but it's Black History Month. We just had Martin Luther King Day. Um, it's always wise to stay off the internet on Martin Luther King Day. Everyone thinks they know Martin. Only Martin knew Martin. And I get really mad. I saw people... Um, I'll, I'll rant on this later, but I saw people saying that he was be a Trump supporter. And I saw people saying that he was a communist and that's good and we should all be communists because he was a... Like everywhere. Everyone wants MLK. Everyone wants King on their side um and the super bowl is here in atlanta this week that's true people are thinking about atlanta yeah people are focused on atlanta um so let's talk about our hometown civil rights hero reverend doctor of martin luther king jr why does why do you think everyone wants mlk everyone wants king on their team well um he has made the transition into the pantheon of the immortals. Uh, he what a phrase. He is also now a a safe hero because he has been his memory has been I think sculpted in a, a in a way that is more or less safe, less threatening, and. Um, Kind of like with Bonhoeffer, everybody wants Bonhoeffer on their team. Everybody wants MLK on their team. So I'm glad we're going to hopefully have a a little more detailed conversation about who he actually was and and, uh, what his legacy should be interpreted to mean. I have a very rich, unfortunately short life, but man, he crammed so much into the, the years he had. How old was he? When he, he was assassinated. Uh, he was assassinated at 39. 39. Wow. The um, the assassination has sort of allowed him to be one of these heroes. A lot of folks muse on a lot of our assassinated heroes. And there's some of them in the Great Moral Leaders book. You mentioned Bonhoeffer. That that allows them to transcend um, the political moment that we, enc- that we encounter them from. There's, there's extra righteousness attributed to the martyred. Yes. I was, about half the leaders in our book were, were assassinated. And I, I do think that it makes me think of Jesus saying, um, woe to you who murder the prophets and then build tombs to honor them. Uh, I think that's what, what we have done with uh, Martin Luther King. And more because he was our person. I mean, he was an American, and and he was assassinated as a result of the hatred and racism of white America. It's important to remember that when he died, his his approval rating was thirty two percent. His disapproval rating was sixty three percent. And, and when there was discussion of a national holiday, and I believe it was in the 80s when that conversation was, uh, it took, I mean, it took that long, but there was... It's still contested. Yeah, it was contested. It really was. And there were states that didn't want to do it. And so, so, so anyway, I think it's important that we remember what our figure of controversy he was in his life 
And one of the things that was strangely comforting to me in putting the Moral Leaders book together was discovering that not a one of these moral leaders was uncontroversial within their lifetime. Uh, they have become more or less consensus heroes now in some cases, but not in their lifetime. And so it makes me feel a little bit better about the fact that, I don't know, my own career has been dogged by controversy. So I guess if you're not controversial, you're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good word. If you're not receiving some sort of pushback, yeah. you might not be going anywhere. Right. Huh. The, um, he was raised, as we said, in Atlanta. And a phrase used in the book is that he was black church royalty. And we've, we've seen that in a few of our other leaders, that they sort of come from a privileged place. And that not being recognized has catapulted them. I think about uh, Mandela sort of has that experience. It's for, for both Mandela and King, uh, it's a combination of indignity and dignity. And I think it's, that's actually a very powerful combination to keep in mind because being treated as a person of worth and dignity within a mi- minoritized community then is a combination of they are certain that they are a person of worth and dignity because their community, their most immediate community, including their family and church, tells them that. Mm-hmm. But then they go out just a little bit out into the world and encounter white racism, which says you are not a person of worth and dignity. That's, so I think it's that combination that is very creative. And it, it was for Dr. King. He knew he was a person of worth and dignity. He was black church royalty, the son and grandson, I think, and great-grandson and nephew and, uh, you know, a pastor. It was a dynasty. It was a dynasty. And um, he also came, I mean, from what was seen as a middle-class family. He, even during the Depression, they had enough to eat. Um, and Martin King Sr. was a highly respected person in his own right. So he knew he was a person of worth and dignity and was not going to internalize white racist messages into his own self, but he was also going to deeply resent them mm-hmm. because they were incongruous with who he knew himself to be. So I, I'm, I'm remembering something from the book that also was, was new to my library of MLK factoids that um, Senior had chosen the name for himself, too, that Martin Luther was a name that he that he renamed himself Martin Luther after a trip to Germany and having a, a deeper encounter with the Lutheran Martin Luther. And I wonder how much of that passed on to Junior in his willingness to be, I, I don't like to do great man history, but this is one of the great men of our history. If the name meant something mm-hmm. to him, if he felt called into vocation, by the name given to him by his family. I would like to know uh, more about why King Sr. changed his name. Um, I'm sure that's available information. But but think about uh, being five years old and, and your dad comes home from an overseas trip and says, Michael, we're changing our name 
Both of us. Both of us. And I have a four-year-old grandson who I see just about every day. And I'm just imagining uh, uh, my grandson, Jonah, um, getting the news that his name was going to change. I, I think You're going to be Dietrich from now on. <laughs> I think that that would not go over all that well. Uh, so that's really, really interesting. But yeah, the great reformer, the one who changed the course of Western Christianity and West and Western history uh, became the namesake of somebody who changed the course of American history. So let's let's talk a little about the development of his vocation. If you are born into church, a church family, if you're a part of a pastoral dynasty, there are expectations that someone from your family moves on. A lot of times when folks meet me and when, when so I'm 28, not an old person. When I was back, when I was young, um, I've been claiming the pastoral vocation for about 10 years, and so walking around as like a 19-year-old saying I'm a pastor, um, finding ways to fa- fall into that role, getting hired by churches, putting my hands in the buzzsaw too early, yeah. really. Um, but people would ask, "Oh, are you from a pastor family?" That they, they want to know: Is it your dad? Is it your grandfather? Where is the where's the connection? I think that um, Martin Luther King Jr. had some, from what I have read, had had some uneasiness about about the role he was to be expected to fulfill. I named him Martin Luther. He's supposed to (laughs) preach. I mean, even if they hadn't, it was the family dynasty. It was partly because... He was an intellectually precocious child, uh, done with high school at the age of 15, done with college at the age of 19. Um, he was he, he had a, a capacious mind and wanted to learn. And frankly, I gather that he felt like what the intellectual world that he was occupying prior to going to Morehouse and seeing that there was a big world available. Mm-hmm felt kind of fundamentalist and narrow to him and he wasn't sure that he wanted to play that game um he wasn't sure that he he i mean he he wasn't sure that it was intellectually respectable or adequate um but when he went to morehouse and he he got to meet and know uh, the president benjamin mays and professor george kelsey and then went on up north to go to Crozier and Boston University, he encountered much more intellectually rich resources. And it's interesting to consider the way in which ultimately he was able to integrate both the kind of biblicist, evangelical, or even fundamentalist mm-hmm. faith of his childhood with the intellectual resources that he that he absorbed, worked hard to absorb uh, at the other levels of his education. An Atlanta Baptist at Boston. Yeah, I think it's fun to, to picture him reading Hegel and Tillich and Niebuhr. And, but it would be wrong to tell the story as he left the Black Baptist tradition behind. Mm-hmm. That's just not true. But he brought, he brought an integration of that tradition and its biblicism and its love of Scripture uh, into synthesis with the education that he received um, in a way that was incredibly creative and, and 
and uh, significant. I think he's important as a thinker, not just as an activist. For mm-hmm. sure. As a thinker, uh, who influences King the most? We, we You dropped some names. He got really into Niebuhr. Yes. Um, um, he, shoot, the, all the German names uh, that Walter, I'm supposed to Walter know. Walter Rauschenbusch in yes. the social gospel movement. Um, he read some Tillich, who was all the rage in the 50s. Um, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, the Boston personalist tradition, as it's described, it's a tradition um, from which he got the phrase "the sacred worth of human personality." Mm-hmm. Um, All of his great, in my opinion, best intellectual work is around the idea of personality. Yes, and the way he used that term. I think he found it to be a profound response to the dehumanization and depersonalization of, of white racism um, into the teeth of voices saying, you don't matter, you are not quite human, you are not quite worthy. And also, it was he was struck by how, how racist blows could be interpreted as attacks on human personality. He talked about how how that child, that developing black child, is affected the first time they, they encounter in a serious way outright rank prejudice. You can't go to this circus. You can't, you can't go over to this friend's house anymore because the parents say, um, no, we, we can't have you playing with black kids. He had that experience. He talked about the kind of um, the damaged look that you see in the eyes of a child who who encounters racism of that type for the first time. That scene is depicted in one of my favorite movies from being a child, a cartoon called My Friend Martin. Have you ever seen this? No, I haven't. I remember repeatedly going to Blockbuster to rent it on VHS. Um, But it's a cartoon about young MLK and some white kids from the 90s I don't remember the circumstance time travel uh, to meet a young Martin Luther King and so they're like 10 year olds hanging out with 10 year old MLK walking around Atlanta and him explaining to them because they're quite confused as kids from the 90s him explaining how the world works and how it feels and that scene of, that's my friend, but we're not friends anymore. Right. Because yeah. his parents say we can't. Yeah. Um, I like the personalist tradition. It also is it's a theological tradition, uh, emphasizing the person, the personhood and personality of God, too. And so is a vertical as well as a horizontal mm-hmm. dimension. Um, but it, it definitely shaped him. So... I picture a young man with a voracious mind trying to process his reality, reading all this kind of Euro-American white theology and ethics and synthesizing it um, as a young black uh, minister and black scholar and putting it together in that creative way that, um, that comes out of his social context, but also his unique genius. It's really quite profound. Yeah, so we, we've, we've touched on a few of his 
influences intellectually and religiously. How did how did the tactics of King develop? Um, direct action, nonviolent protest. How how did those develop and materialize for him? Because we've seen them in some other places. It looks a bit like Gandhi and some of the other folks that we've talked about. Gandhi was directly influential. Uh, he he uh, studied Gandhi's strategies in India. And um, he also had read some Thoreau on civil disobedience. Um, basically, he, he was mastering the Western intellectual tradition as well as other voices. Gandhi, Gandhi was significant. And... Um, and so, he, in, when he talked about his intellectual journey, he, he said it was the theology of the Sermon on the Mount and the strategy of Gandhi. Huh. You put those together and you get the, the nonviolent civil disobedience. And there were other people who were thinking along these lines. I mean, there was the Highlander School in Tennessee that was already training people in nonviolent resistance. Uh, nonviolent resistance was a thing after Gandhi. Right. I mean, it spread. We saw that it could work. Saw that it could work. It spread like wildfire and people were thinking about it. But um, King was the first one to, to, to try to lead a movement, a mass movement based on the strategy. First one here of massive nonviolent civil disobedience. At one point early on in Montgomery, he called it passive resistance, which is not the best term for it. But mm-hmm. passive resistance is we are going to, to act with our bodies, but not violently. We're going to resist. And if you are going to oppress us, you're going to have to plow through our bodies to do it. Like sit-ins at lunch counters, we're not moving. We're not hitting anybody, but we're not moving. You're going to have to physically lift up our bodies, and then more bodies will be there. You have to lift those up, and then more bodies will be there. You have to lift those up. The strategy, and of course Gandhi understood this, especially with a lot of bodies, um, it is really hard to keep order and have any kind of functioning uh, city or restaurant or any mm-hmm. other space if you have a whole bunch of people shoving in, themselves into the cogs, uh-huh, interposing their bodies in the in the in the cogs of that system and saying you're going to have to remove us forcibly uh, to and the, do what you do. And the civil rights movement had the incredible benefit of the news cycle and cameras being everywhere. Um, Gandhi had to use a lot more sheer numbers because uh, they they weren't being seen. There was you can see some footage of Gandhian uh, events even as far back as the twenties and thirties, but but it's, there's no comparison. Um, by the late fifties, early sixties, once the civil rights movement became a national movement, the national cameras were watching everything. Mm-hmm. There's no way to get get out of it. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's in everyone's home. It's not Twitter. Um, it's not as instantaneous, um, but but it was still modern mass media. And also it's interesting that, of course, there were only three major television stations at that time, and, and it was such big news that they were all covering it, um, you know. So, so yeah, his, his, uh, his movement's use of media is very interesting to think about. It was, and he said, we must expose the rank, putrid hatefulness of this racist structure for all the world to see to embarrass Mm -hmm. and shame 
America for what is unworthy of America. It's one thing for there to be a protest down the street that goes bad, but it's another to have to explain to your kid in a white home uh, why the man on TV is being attacked by a dog when he's clearly just standing on the street. Right. Um, But I still am so amazed at the courage required of those protesters. If you were to resist injustice with arms, it would still require courage. Mm -hmm. To resist injustice at all after centuries of, especially in the South, of being told, if you get out of line, you might just find yourself lynched from the nearest tree. For a whole people to say, no more of that, we're not going to be frightened anymore, we are going to resist. But then to say, and we're going to resist nonviolently. It's proof of humanity. It's um, took extraordinary courage, extraordinary leadership too. Because what would have to happen in a given town is is a training, training of the of the resistors mm-hmm. before the events. So Block captains, so that they would have to know how it would go, and 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 they would practice. When you get hit, this is what you do, and and when they try to take you off to prison, this is what you do, and. Um, but by all means, he talked about, King talked about spiritual self-purification in preparation uh, for these events. Um, I mean, in the context of, of what Southern police were like, what the jails were like, how people disappeared into, the, into them and never came out again, uh, to, to court arrest, to know that you were going to be arrested, know that you're going to be in those police cars and to voluntarily face that. So let's just, we must not take for granted the courage that was involved and the leadership and inspirational power that was required mm-hmm. on the part of Dr. King and others. Yeah, the, the, I think the Sermon on the Mount's required to get you to that point. Yeah. So much of the, um, oh shoot, what's, what's your phrase? Transforming initiatives? Mm-hmm. The... What do you do when encountering personal evil is to force it to look at you yeah. sort of thoughts? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can get to this movement without turn the other cheek, give the tunic with the cloak. Right. And then what's interesting, I was, I was teaching through Howard Thurman's book again, Jesus and the Disinherited. Mm-hmm. Dangerous book. And um, this was 1949, and he, he also was... By the way, Thurman was an influence, too, because he was interpreting Jesus in a way that um, that led to a different kind of to resistance. But Thurman's book, I read Thurman as not yet having reached the place of that the Sermon on the Mount leads to uh, practices that are transforming initiatives, that he wasn't quite there. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't quite Thurman. Or Gandhi plus Thurman, I think it was Sermon on the Mount plus Gandhi. Um, you do these specific things, and by like by putting your body in the streets of Birmingham, you are resisting, but you are not resisting violently. That was a lot of people had interpreted Jesus turn the other cheek as as uh, 
as a strategy of acquiescence of of surrender. Mm-hmm. Somebody hits you, you let them hit you some more. Um, this, that's not what the civil rights movement did, or how how King interpreted Sermon on the Mount. It's you resist, and then you resist some more, and they pummel you, but you keep resisting. So the strategy is is to expose the injustice right. so that it can be changed. Someone um, demands your jacket, you take off your clothes because what they are do they need to see this action is the stripping. You have become yes, and this level of violence, right? And and then it's all the better if there are TV cameras there so that everybody can see the rawness of your evil and dehumanization for what it is. Um, but of course, it's at the price of great risk and great suffering for those who are doing who are doing it. Is there? Could you look at someone doing some sort of work today and say that is King Kingness Kinglian? How how do we make his name a a school? Is he yeah. a, is it? Would you be a Kinglian scholar? <laughs> I've never heard that, but um, but it is there a way to identify? Because he's such an amalgamation. He's got so many things. He's brought so many tools with him. And he's synthesized them so well. Could we distinctly say what he's doing is something new? Can someone do King? Um, I think it was his own creative synthesis. It was a a different strategy, complementary to other strategies. It's important to know that there were other strategies being pursued at the time, like the NAACP's legal strategy of challenging things in the courts and um, and so on. And there were uh, labor-related uh, approaches through um, uh, the unions. And so so there were multiple voices, uh, artistic and literary responses like uh, plays and, and the, the work of like James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the way, uh, you listeners should know that I'm teaching a class all Baldwin. <laughs> All Baldwin this semester. Plug it again. Plug it again. Really rich. Really rich. But, um, so... Um, we should publish the uh, reading list for that. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, if you send me that, we'll okay. share it with the dear listener. Yeah. Um, but I think his synthesis was was original and unique and was also contextual. It, 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 it spoke to America at that moment and... He also had a specific kind of set of leadership gifts. I think it's fair to say that after he was assassinated, the movement itself never really recovered. And now, 50 years later, um, the social context of America has changed so much that that kind of strategy couldn't work in exactly that same way. Mm -hmm. There are different kinds of strategies needed. Um, You see people who are attempting to do kind of like the old chestnuts of the civil rights strategy now, and you see that a lot of times it doesn't work that way. You have to do something different. Like, for example, his rhetoric was a rhetoric of um, of a lot of biblical references and so on. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It, it was based, like a lot of other movements in American history, on biblical literacy in a mm-hmm. population. So people can't wouldn't do know, that anymore. can't do that anymore. You can't assume that language. No. So, um, you have to explain it if you use it. And, and then you'll be disagreed with. Yeah, there's more religious pluralism now. And, and there's also, a, I think, a lot less respect for the church. Just a capital yeah. C church. We've earned that. We've earned that. 
So strategy is different now. Like the Black Lives Matter movement is is a more of a has more secular strategy, you know. And um, so so I think that's that's relevant to know. But but he brought this just unique range of gifts. I also am increasingly seeing he he had a strategy for how to appeal to the white Christian conscience that was, it was unique. It was not what Malcolm X did. It was not what James Baldwin did. It was not what Harry Belafonte did. It was, it was not, I mean, everybody had their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this was his approach. And um, he was trained as a theologian and ethicist, which is one reason why we theologian ethicist types like him so much, right? You know, there was a certain depth to his intellect, to his rhetoric, to his writing, and he was a participant in a tradition that I was trained in and that and that uh, we try to train people in. So um, for all those reasons, he's just unbelievably attractive to to me and um, and to the tradition that he helped to form that that I was trained in. So, million dollar question. Is that still relevant? Is that still a relevant <laughs> thing to say? Sure. <laughs> 64,000 dollar question. What here. would be what's the new version of that? All right, so here's here's the real hashtag. Um what what might MLK say today? If we cuz we've got we've extrapolated his legacy into so many places. So many people are claiming King. There's bookshelves, libraries of books about King on different subjects, and he gets made smaller. Uh, we remember him exclusively most of the time for his civil rights activism, but he was a part of labor movements, and he had economic ideas that made him... The government was more upset about his economics and his war ideas. Right, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam war. Um, what would he say today? Well, who? I mean, I, I think of the late, the late stage of Martin Luther King talking about what he called the giant triplets of militarism, racism, and materialism or, mm. or economic injustice. And um, these are so deeply embedded in American culture that he would still have plenty to say about all of them. I think he would have been a he would be a liberal activist now as he was then. He would be anti-racist. He would be anti-militarist. He would and he would be um, for economic justice and a reduction of economic inequality. So um, um, I think that that our society hasn't seriously challenged the the economic inequality and, and materialism really since the since the Reagan days. So that's almost 40 years now. And um, on the militarism, it's interesting. There's, I think, a little bit of unease over our foreign engagements. And um, one of the interesting things about the Trump presidency is he also seems more interested in bringing troops home than in sending troops out, mm-hmm. which is actually one of the few things I, I kind of like. Um, and, and then on the racism... Um, racism just continually resurfaces in different forms. So I often wonder kind of what he would have done if he had lived. Would he have eventually um, 
been a been a pastor again? Would he have been a professor? He had he had so many opportunities, so many offers. Um, Everyone wants him now. Everybody wants him, him then now. too. Um, people who knew him said that by the end of his life, he was exhausted. His schedule was ridiculous. The, the stress was ubiquitous, and the death threats were constant um, from individuals and the state. Right. So, so what? What would he have done? Would he have ever felt released to to do something different? I can't imagine him keeping up the pace even ten more years if he had lived. Um, but these are counterfactuals. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he was weary, uh, and uh, I'm grateful for the years we you know you might say the years we had of with him. It, it, the whole career was meteoric. It was. 1955 to 1968, 13 years. And what he was able to get done in those 13 years. It's incredible. It is incredible. I honor him. Not sentimentally, I honor him because he deserves it. Amen. Should we play those uh, leadership lessons? Sure. All right, let's do it. Starting this episode, we'll be playing the audiobook for the leadership lessons section of the podcast. We're doing so with permission of Brazos, so don't tweet us and tell us we're breaking rules. We're really excited about this. We think it's a good part of the program. Let's have a listen. Leadership Lessons Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Prepare to be hated. Holding true to your moral convictions will often result in more hatred than popularity. The real moral leader never hopes to be hated as some peculiar badge of honor, but you must be willing to stand by your convictions, even if it means not popularity and praise, but death threats and disgust. Speak to multiple audiences. King was a gifted crossover leader. He knew how to speak to white and black Americans, labor unions and business leaders in the language that was most effective in each setting. He managed to gain the sympathy of some white Americans who might otherwise have felt threatened, but did so without sacrificing or apologizing for his opposition to virulent white racism. True movements are bigger than one person. King was not alone in his work. He worked alongside friends and allies and in friendly competition with others who shared his goals. He emerged as the central leader of the civil rights movement because he had the right skills, strategy, and vision for the time. But he would not have accomplished what he did without so many others, including anonymous everyday heroes whose names are not recorded in the history books. Leadership may be forced on us before we are ready. No one is ever truly prepared to be a moral leader. Coretta and Martin went to Montgomery, knowing they would be fighting racism, but never could they have imagined that the bus boycott would elevate him to leadership of a national movement. Responsibility may be thrust upon us before we are ready. The question is whether we accept it with humility or arrogance. Use your gifts. King was not the best organizer in the civil rights movement, but he was its most gifted preacher and orator. He came from a long line of preachers, in a distinguished tradition that knew how to communicate complicated ideas simply and to great effect. What made him great is the way he put his unique skills and heritage to work. 
knowing how he might best serve the movement and where it was best to lean on others. Make connections. See the connections between issues. Draw lines between causes. Bring unlikely allies into the same room to discover what they have in common. King did not network for the sake of networking, as some are taught today. He reflected deeply on the problems in his society and reached out to others. From white allies to trade unions to anti-war activists to explain how all their goals were bound to a shared dream. King's story is about perseverance for a moral cause in the face of great adversity, and how such perseverance so rarely elicits affection within a leader's lifetime. More than 50 years after King's I Have a Dream speech, America has still not fully confronted its racist history. The nation is still racked with racial disparities in wealth, employment, education, incarceration, and violence, and remains far more segregated than we are fond of admitting. There are MLK Day sales at shops to celebrate a man who confronted consumerism, and his words are used to sell trucks in television ads. The radical elements of his moral vision for the beloved community have been swept under the rug in order to produce a safe national hero. King's dream is not fulfilled, and yet, there are little black boys and black girls who join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. His life, and the times in which he lived, changed America for the better. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Kingdom Ethics Podcast is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where the world's hardest problems meet faith's deepest values. Thank you for tuning in this week. We look forward to more episodes to come and having you back. Please like, share, and subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you.